Our text is Ephesians 6. I'll start reading at verse 10, 10 through 18. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand. Stand, therefore, having girded your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Above all, taking the shield of faith, with which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Praying always, with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. Let's pray. Father God, we ask you to open our ears that you may teach, and I pray, Father, that you would guide my words, that I would say what it is that you would have me to say and refrain from saying what I ought not. Thank you, Father, for your presence with us. Pray that your Holy Spirit would guide each of us uh, further and further into obedience into the depths of your kingdom. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. This is the second of four in a series called Spiritual Warfare. Last week, the title was Know Your Enemy, and we learned that opposition, our enemy, started uh, right on day six, soon after uh, man was created, deceiving Adam and Eve. He and his hordes of demons heavily influence our world systems, infiltrate them to use them against God and against us, God's church, His children. And sadly, our own hearts betray us. We have an old man within us that we must subjugate, that we must keep imprisoned, and we don't always do that successfully. Today's topic is master your weaponry. Next week, it's engage your allies, and the next week, it's embrace your battle. And so, God willing, we'll complete this in two weeks. I want to give you an overview before we get into the text of a couple of terms, offense and defense. Many of us, uh, probably nearly all men, would be very familiar with the concepts of offense and defense. Many of the women, too. We are in Nebraska, after all. And so, I'll start with baseball, though, instead of our beloved football. In baseball, there are nine innings. Each inning has a half, so there's a top and the bottom half. Each team gets to get up at bat and be in the field, offense, defense. The same players play. The same nine people play baseball. The American League has the designated hitting rule where one man comes in and bats for the pitcher, and they're really wimpy. The National League thinks they're wimps anyway. But you see there, there is this obvious offense and defense in baseball. In football, you have obvious offense and defense too, and so you have the quarterback, and he's out there with his offense, and they're trying to move the ball down the field, and then you have the defense. And in professional football, it's very, very rare 
that you have a player that plays on both offense and defense. It's just not done anymore. You might have that at your local high school, but it's not done in the pros. And what makes football really interesting, at least for me if I'm watching, is when a fumble or an interception occurs, because then suddenly 11 people that were on defense become offense, and 11 people that were on offense become defense. And typically, it ends in a flag, because none of these people really are skilled at what they're attempting to do now. And so those are the most fun plays. Again, though, it's offense, defense, but yet it can get intermingled at weird times. Other ball games or other games like this, competitive sports, you have soccer, you have basketball, you have hockey. Their offense and defense are more fluid. The same players are out there, and the same players can sometimes be offense or defense, but again, you have designated people that you tend to use for that type of thing. Some games, and these aren't sports now, but they're games, they tightly interweave the offense and defense too. Um, when I was a kid, we would play Chinese checkers. And if you had all six players attempting to play Chinese checkers, the whole middle gets covered with marbles. And sometimes you have to go way around in order to try to get to your home. Some of you maybe have never played Chinese checkers. I can see by the blank looks on your faces. But uh, I enjoyed it when I was a kid. Checkers, similar concept, not as complex. Chess, of course, is the game that blends offense and defense. You have to play defense if you're gonna be any good at chess or you'll get whipped right away all the time, like I would when I was young. And like when I was playing Caleb, I mean, he would whip me on, when, when I got Facebook, the first thing Caleb Duff started sending me invites to play chess. And each time I would have to move, I would groan inside because I just didn't wanna dedicate the time necessary to figure this out. I wasn't very good. In some sports, now you alternate. In chess, you alternate, it's fair. You can't just kind of cheat and try to move twice. That would be uh, unfair to your opponent. But also, in some sports like tennis, you have to alternate who starts. Because the, the person that starts in tennis has a tremendous advantage. They can slam that ball and serve it, and they're essentially on offense. And then the other opponent gets to lead with the next set. Um, kind of a similar concept with uh, wrestling. When I was a boy, I learned wrestling, and this was where you're on the ground. One person gets down on their hands and knees, and the other boy sits next to you with their hands around you. I hated wrestling. I mean, you have to grab these sweaty guys. It was no fun, and I often lost because I just wasn't very aggressive. And uh, so again, offense and defense, they get mixed up, and you have to give people ad advantages or disadvantages. Now, the one sport, though, that is really mixing up offense and defense is boxing. Because in boxing, the boxers are in what are called their neutral corners. Bing! They come out, they start hitting one another, and then three minutes later, ding, it stops. And then that, now they get to rest, they go to their corner. And so during that three minutes, they're allowed to hit one another, and they're expected to hit one another. And sometimes the crowd will boo if one of the players is not boxing, if they're only playing defense. Muhammad Ali was famous for that. He would go out and just do his rope-a-dope and stand there and take punches for round after round after round. But then suddenly, in the middle of a round, he would just go crazy, all offense, batter his opponent. And so he was unique in that regard. Most boxers are mixing it up the whole time. There are referees in all these sports, typically, these competitive sports. There have to be. There are rules, and the rules have to be obeyed, and the referees are there to ensure that they're obeyed. And if not, 
you get penalized. So that's a good introduction, I think, to offense and defense, and keep that in mind as we go through this sermon because it kind of comes up, and you can picture it in the back of your mind, all of these various aspects of offense and defense. Now, there is a preface in our text, verses 10 through 13, a preface to the actual putting on of the armor, so let's cover that preface. Be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. That's how our text starts out. Be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. The armor we put on, it will be made clear, is God's armor. It's not our armor. It's the armor of God. You might wear it, but you didn't make it, and it's not yours. It's God's. Back in the day, armor was very, very costly. It was not everybody that had a suit of armor hanging in their closet. You had to earn that right to have that armor, to own that. God, however, equips all of His children with invincible armor. On the market, it would be without the ability to uh, calculate its cost because it's so valuable. Yet, because we all that are God's children have such armor, we can take it for granted. And we don't necessarily put it to the use that God intends us to put it. In verse 11, the first line says, put on the whole armor of God, every piece. And we'll go through all of the pieces of the armor. If you're missing a piece of armor, then you're going to suffer for it. You will not be as well protected in battle against our enemies as you would need to be. You might be missing a piece of armor, or you actually might be attempting to use your own piece of armor. You think of Adam and Eve. When they were naked and they realized they were, they made those fig leaves. They were attempting to cover themselves, but then God covered them. That was God providing for them something that they had provided a very poor uh, facsimile of. Armor is the same thing. Each one of the pieces of armor is made by God for a specific purpose, and obviously this is a metaphor, and I want you to not forget that it's a metaphor, and so each time I'll try to focus on what that piece of armor means, and oftentimes it's right in the text. But the next three verses, from the middle of 11 to the beginning of 14, we have three words, three uh, occurrences of the word stand, and one of withstand, stand against, withstand in the evil day, stand, stand. Paul is writing to people who he wants to have what? Stand, stand up, both before the fight begins and when the fight is concluded. Because if you're not standing at the end of the fight, you lost the fight. In boxing, that's what happens. The person that gets knocked down for 10 seconds loses. And so Paul is writing to people that lose fights, and he's trying to counsel them to start winning fights. He's equipped us to win, and yet we must do what it is that God tells us to do in order to win. So see, that's what this is about. It's about winning, and who doesn't want to win? So listen up, let's win. 
The words, be able, are in verse 11, verse 13, and then to stand are in verse 13 as well. See, there's this be able, be able to stand. He's telling you about the ability to do something, and his desire is that in the end you will have exercised that ability and achieved, achieved what it is that he wants you to. So, again, we have these concept of defense and offense. There are explicitly six pieces of armor listed. The belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, the shoes or boots, I would call them, of the gospel of peace, the shield of faith, and the helmet of salvation. Those are the first five. They're all defensive in nature. None of them are offensive in nature. Belt of truth, breastplate of righteousness, boots of the gospel, shield of faith, helmet of salvation. All of them are meant to protect the wearer. They're all defensive. And then you come to the sixth piece of the armor, and that's the only piece that is offensive. It's defensive as well, but that's the sword of the Spirit. But the very next verse, in verse 18, we see, praying always with all prayer and supplication of the Spirit. This, I would say, is another weapon that comes along with the use of this armor. It's what you need to do as well. And so prayer should obviously be referenced as one of the components of the armor. You're helpless without it. There is an eighth weapon that isn't in this text that we'll describe in a bit. So let's start with the belt of truth. Having girded your waist with truth. I'll give you five quotes concerning truth from different eras, different pr people. There is a man, a Greek playwright that lived in the 5th century B.C. that said this. He wrote this. I believe his name is Aeschylus. In war, truth is the first casualty. We've heard this in various forms ever since that time, and it's true. Information is vital in war, and so people are reluctant to share the unvarnished truth. Each side in a battle is attempting to bolster their argument by saying that it's going better than it might really be. Jonathan Swift, a writer in the 1700s, said this, falsehood flies and truth comes limping after it. Falsehood flies and truth comes limping after it. It's Winston Churchill that said this, and again, there were probably others that said something similar. A lie gets halfway around the world before truth gets his trousers on. That's a very colorful one. Now, this one, I was really surprised. I had to do a double check of this one. This is Michael Jackson, the pop star. This is what he said, oh, I guess it was like seven years ago, um, when he was facing uh, charges for child molestation. He said, lies run sprints, but the truth runs marathons. Very good quote. And he was acquitted of all of the cases in his lifetime. He only lived to, I think, 51 or 4 or something like that. He was sued a thousand times. And so I don't know that he was guilty of a thousand different things that people were attempting to sue him for. People probably saw him as a nice, soft target to try to get money out of. 
But still, uh, God knows the truth. The Bible speaks to this topic of distinguishing uh, lies from truth, and we as parents especially would be wise to pay attention to what the Bible has to say about lies and truth and hold ourselves and our children accountable for honoring it. Proverbs 18, verse 17, the first one to plead his cause seems right until his neighbor comes and examines him. So in other words, it's likely that you're only hearing one side of the story with whomever comes and tells you the first part. You can't judge at that point. You have to hear the rest of the story. You have to hear the other people. This is why gossip and slander can be so damaging, because you're typically only hearing it from one person, and you're hearing only one perspective from that one person. Parents in their homes have to adjudicate disputes. If you're not doing that in your home between your children, then you're not doing your job, and you're allowing chaos to rule in your home, and you're not allowing justice and fairness to rule in your home, and instead, you're letting your children believe that might makes right in a sense. So you really want to fix that. If you tend to let things go, if you just tend to push the kids off into a room when they come to you and want to argue their case about who's right or wrong, and you have no patience for it, and you tell them to get lost, work it out amongst themselves, you're not really helping them. And often there is an aggrieved party in such a dispute. There is someone that started it, and you need to get to the truth of that and let your children know that there is justice on the earth, and it begins in your home such that we can expect it to fill the earth. If there's no justice in your home, how can our children expect to have justice on the earth? There was a coworker long ago, when I first got out of the service, there was a man, he had been in the Navy, and he had had some hard uh, aspects of his life, I think. I, I didn't know him for long, but he always had something interesting to say. I kind of admired him. And he said this once, and I'd never heard it before. The wheels of justice turn slowly, but grind exceedingly fine. And what he meant was, he, he had been in the Navy, and he talked about the Navy, that there can be these unfair things going on, and people will get over on the system for a while. But eventually, the wheels of justice are grinding slowly in that big Navy organization, and eventually people are held to account. And that's good. That gives us faith and hope that things are going to get better, that people aren't going to just get away with impunity when they're violating rules. Remember, we're talking about the belt of truth. The Bible clearly states that the Father, Son, the Holy Spirit, and the Bible are all truth. I'll give you four references. The Bible, Psalm 119, verse 160, the entirety of your word is truth. Concerning the Father, Hebrews 6, verse 18 says, it is impossible for God to lie. And this is wonderful news. In John chapter 14, Jesus said this, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And you know what comes next. No one comes to the Father but through me. And Jesus also said two chapters on in John 16, verse 13, that the Holy Spirit will guide you into all truth. So that's the Holy Spirit's job in us, 
is to lead us to what is true and obviously then to steer us away from what is false. This is the belt of truth, and it is no accident that the belt of truth is what we're referring to, and I bring up the sports analogies, because in boxing, you're not allowed to hit below the belt. It's painful when men get hit below the belt. And so the referee is supposed to prevent that and to, and to heavily, but what does he do? Refs just really stop in and slow the fight for a few seconds. It's not like they can dock points or something in a boxing match. So it seems to me to be biased in boxing towards the people that can say, oh, I made a mistake. And then they just make a mistake another round later or another round later, and they never get disqualified, and then they might win the match in the end. But Satan loves to hit below the belt. He is no respecter of persons or rules. He lies to us all the time. If he had lips, you would know he is lying when his lips were moving, but he's spiritual, and so unless he's inhabiting some human body, I don't know that you would see his lips move. We guard against Satan's lies because we know, we believe, and we trust, and we obey what is true, what the Bible says. To the degree that we drift from this, that we don't care what the Bible says, is the degree to which we are then susceptible to being affected by these demons, believe their lies. And so we can't just arbitrarily pick and choose aspects of the Word that we will choose to believe and then disbelieve other parts. People that do that are typically heading for hell. They don't truly know God. I've met such people. I've had Bible studies with such people. It's very frustrating. They never want to stick with the Bible. They're always pulling in some other source that supposedly trumps the Bible. So we have to be on guard against lies as part of our Christian duty. And that's what that belt signifies. You have the belt on and your sword is mounted to it. You ought to have your belt with you if you're going to have your sword. So, and what's really sad is some of the worst attacks upon Christians, and you may have experienced some of this, um, come upon you from people who say they too are Christian. It was in 1978, November of 1978, that Jim Jones led all of his followers were in this, that were in this Pentecostal offshoot called the People's Temple. He led them all to Guyana in northeastern South America. Essentially, he was fleeing from the United States because the government was after him for good cause in this case. But this is where that phrase, drink the Kool-Aid, comes from. All of these hundreds of people drank cyanide-laced Kool-Aid and died. And what the first responders said, you know, they were traumatized by this, finding all these hundreds of people dead. But what they said is they did not find one Bible in that camp. I mean, this is supposedly a Pentecostal group, a Christian group. But they had no need for the Bible. They had Jim Jones, their cult leader, to lead them. So now next is the breastplate of righteousness. 
having put on the breastplate of righteousness. I want to read Zechariah chapter 3, and I'll read four verses. This is a vision, and, and this is an angel. When it says, then he, that's an angel. Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at the right hand to oppose him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was clothed with filthy garments and was standing before the angel. Then he answered and spoke to those who stood before him, saying, Take away the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, See, I have removed your iniquity from you, and I will clothe you with rich robes. The metaphor is different. Here we have clean robes, your filthy garments are cast off, but this is God's righteousness. This is what in Ephesians 6 Paul refers to as the breastplate of righteousness. And so here was Satan accusing the high priest of God, the man that enters the Holy of Holies once a year on the people's behalf of sin. And of course, all men are sinners, yet God cleansed him, God purified him, and this is obviously with the expectation that the Messiah would come, that Christ would come to do this for his children, for his people. It's God's righteousness that protects us. It's God's breastplate of righteousness. So when you meet people who are self-righteous, what you're really saying then is they have their own breastplate. They don't want God's breastplate. They don't feel they need God's breastplate. And sometimes it's sad, but we can be such people. We can drift away from God, drift away from His Word, disobey the leading and guiding of the Holy Spirit, and view ourselves as self-righteous, righteous in ourselves. It's so subtle that we don't necessarily catch it at first, and yet you see it, and you see how ugly you are, kind of like Joshua here with these filthy garments. And you plead, God, restore to me your righteousness. My righteousness is of no value. The breastplate that this uh, man is described as having, that Paul, this soldier, it's covering all your vital organs. You know, you got your heart, you got your lungs, you got your stomach and your liver, your vital parts. And that plate is protecting all of that in battle. And so it's saving, it's preserving your life. Without that, you are just open to the attack. No defense whatsoever. We have, in, in, in one of these books, and I'll refer to these in a bit, he uses two different terms for righteousness. I prefer to use these terms that I'll mention. We have positional righteousness, let me say, with God. This is by virtue of the fact that we have submitted ourselves to God. He has cleansed us of our sin. We've been adopted as His child. He has now bestowed upon us His righteousness. We are righteous in His eyes. That never goes away. It's hard to believe, isn't it? I mean, we can sin so egregiously beyond that point, but yet that righteousness before God never goes away. You can't lose it. So, for instance, David, in his incident with Bathsheba and her husband Uriah, that played out over months and months. 
David, if he had died during that period, even though he was enmeshed in that grievous sin, he would have died a saved man, a righteous man. But was he behaving righteously in this matter? Of course not. He was behaving horribly in this matter. He committed adultery with Bathsheba, and then he conspired to murder her husband to try to hide it from everybody. So he had positional righteousness, but he lacked what I would call volitional righteousness. He was not acting righteously. You couldn't have seen that he was a Christian at that point, a believer, that he loved God and that he obeyed his word. A friend that I knew way back when I became Reformed, like forever ago, um, he was at a church and he told the story of they were forming like an evangelistic squad to go out and visit new businesses in the neighborhood. And there were about six men that volunteered. So they get together the first night and they pray over these new businesses and they parcel them out. And they gave this one man a dry cleaner and he just deflated. And he said, I cannot go visit this business. Just the other day I had tried them out and I felt they did a horrible job and I told them so. I mean, he lost his cool. He went in there and chewed them up one side and down the other, said he'd never be back. Well, of course, you know what the pastor did. He's not letting him off the hook. You're the perfect guy to go back and speak to that dry cleaner. But so, see, that's what God does. God has a wicked sense of humor, I think. I mean, how many times have I been put into similar situations where, where I'm just thinking, how on earth could this have happened? This is not a coincidence. This is God doing this to me. And I laugh because you feel loved. You're about to have to do something that you would rather not do, but God loves you. And He's showing you that he's exi He exists and He takes an interest in your life. The shoes of the gospel of peace, having shod your feet with the gospel of peace. Now, I believe... It's time to go when you put your shoes on, right? I mean, that's pretty much the last thing you do at my house. The shoes go on, you're out the door. I was uh, watching uh, Micah's family get ready yesterday to go out to the Dykstra's for dinner, and they even had their jackets on before they put their shoes on. They put their shoes on and boom, out the door. See, that's what shoes are an indicator of. Now, in my house growing up, we had that shag carpeting, of course, back in the 70s everywhere, and you wore your shoes all the time in the house. I mean, you took them off to go to bed, I think. And so that's not a good indicator at my house. But in a sense, it was because I was ready to go. I could just go out the door any second. If you have no shoes on, however, you're probably not ready to go. Um, I want to tell three stories. I'll try to tell them quickly um, um, or else I'm going to take too long. They're all about shoes, though. Shoes for my life. One, I was 10. And it's summer no school, and my friend up the street and I, my best friend, I mean, we did everything together, got in so much trouble, but he and I, I was, I was an unbeliever, children, so don't take any of your uh, behavior advice from me. Um, so we went to the bowling alley. We'd beg our moms every day to take us to the bowling alley because you could bowl there for hours, and it was so cheap during the summer. And so we would go to the bowling alley, go to the bowling alley. Well, one day, I left with my bowling shoes, and I left my ratty sneakers by accident at the place where I was bowling under the chair. So I get home. I get all the way home. And then I realize I have bowling shoes on. Well, of course, the next day, I just wore the bowling shoes back. 
I thought, well, I'm going to go back and get my ratty sneakers. Well, I go back, I go up to the counter, and the man says, I don't have your sneakers. And I thought, well, they were right there, like, you know, 14 hours ago. And what's funny is then there's this little Asian man. It's probably the first Asian man I'd ever seen. And he's standing behind me, and I kind of said, I'm 10 years old. Yet I look over, and I'm towering over this little Chinese man. And he's looking me up and down, and he says, where the hell your shoes go? And I had no answer for him. I, I don't know where my shoes went. And then it dawned on me later that day, he's the janitor. He knows where my shoes went. He threw them away. So I had to leave. I thought it would have been right and just for them to allow me to keep the bowling shoes, but they did not believe that was the case. So I left in my stocking feet. I was so embarrassed. Next story. It's like three or four years later. I'm working with my father. We'd laid all these concrete uh, dry, uh, sidewalks, and we were putting these wooden beams over them. When we laid the concrete, we would stick these aluminum nails out of the concrete at intervals because we would then throw these boards on. Well, I'm helping my dad. We just drilled this board, and I'm helping him to set this board down, and I, I do this. And I thought, that felt funny. And I looked down, and there's a nail sticking right up through my foot. My shoes were on. And so my, I said, Dad, and he looked over, and there's this nail sticking right up through the middle of my foot. And he helped pull it off, took off my shoe, and I could see it. It was barely bleeding. It just went right through the meaty part. And I mean, within a week, I was back to normal. But I wasn't wearing the right footwear in that instance. I was just wearing these weak sneakers, no soles, just went right through that nail. Third story. And I wish Ray was here. Maybe Ray's watching. I was in the service, I was traveling with a man and his wife back from Arizona to Ohio, and we stop in Amarillo. I had just crawled out of the back of his truck, he has a little cap on it, there's all this junk piled in there, and I had been dead to the world, I'd been asleep. So I hear us pull into a gas station. I jump out, it's the middle of summer, it's Amarillo, Texas, it's like 140 degrees. I'm only dressed in cutoff shorts, that's all I have on, I have nothing else on. And I jump out, and I'm half asleep, and I'm stumbling over to the gas station. It's the only thing for miles around. And it's so well lit. It's so bright. And I'm asleep, so my eyes aren't... Oh. I get in there, I get a drink, and I'm up at the counter paying, and I begin to think, wait a minute, I've been walking all this way in my bare feet, and I keep stepping around things. And I look down, and there are thousands of bugs. I mean, they're just thousands of bugs. They're all the bugs for a miles around are all at this gas station. And so I'm like, ew. And so I'm, now I've got my drink and I'm tiptoeing out to the truck. Then I see I had left the door to the rear open and I saw all these bugs going into that thing. I mean, these bugs are enormous. So again, here it was disgusting that I didn't have any footwear on. So see, each of these instances is where I lacked the proper or any footwear and so I was embarrassed, I was hurt and in pain, and I was grossed out totally. So see, what are the shoes of peace, the gospel of peace? What are these boots? What, what is it that I started when I talked about shoes? I said, what is it that you're ready to do when you get them on? You're ready to go. You're ready to go out the door. And what is it that you're going to do? You're going to fight the enemy, you're going to share the word, so the gospel of peace, your feet being shod with the gospel of peace, reflects the state of your heart. 
you have been forgiven by God, you are going out with that attitude deeply fixed in your heart and mind. When you go out uh, to, to uh, share the gospel with people, you have to have that mindset. You have to want what's best for these people, and what's best for them is to know the Lord in order to deal with the potential abuse that might come, to not instantly have a bad attitude about them, to be willing to pray for them and what's best for them. And so you have to be properly attired, and this is reflecting your heart. You have to be properly attired in your heart to be able to minister the gospel when it's the, when it's the opportunity for you to do so. We tear down Satan's kingdom, and this is in your handout, we tear down Satan's kingdom using instruments of peace and truth. The weapons of our warfare are not carnal, and yet they are powerful, these weapons that God has given us. He gives us these innocent weapons. And then two, if you're wearing armor, it seems odd to have described for you that your feet are shod with the gospel of peace. They sound so soft. They sound so incapable of supporting a soldier in armor who's wielding a sword, yet they're what God wants us to wear. They're what we have to wear. So the next is the shield of faith. Taking the shield of faith, you quench the fiery darts of the wicked one. The key word here is the word all, that you address all of the fiery darts of the wicked one. Above all, taking the shield of faith with which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one. God gives us all authority and all ability to resist all of Satan's lies. If we find ourselves falling, we have to realize that it's not God's fault. We are lacking something significant. Perhaps it is merely the intent to win. You have to have a desire to win this battle. And yet, if your flesh is weak and you're giving into it, you don't really want to win anymore. You are, for that, in that instant, siding with the enemy against your own destruction. This shield that God gives us is the Thorio shield. This is this huge shield that covers you completely. Psalm 512 says, Lord, you surround the righteous with your favor as with a shield. Hebrews 11.6 says, without faith it is impossible to please him, for he who comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. I love that verse because it shows that God does reward those that seek him. And yet without faith, it is impossible to please God. And so we must have faith in order to be able to have that, that shield to ward off these things. The average unbeliever or the average nominal Christian wouldn't even want to shield themselves from many of these fiery darts. They welcome them in their life. Not all, of course. Um, much of what Satan does, and I'll mention it uh, eventually here, uh, much of what Satan does to his own people who serve him willingly is so evil. If he treats his own people that badly, then certainly he'd treat Christians horribly. When you're wielding a shield, where would your eyes be? What would you be doing with your eyes when you're in a sword fight and you're wielding a sword? A, 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 
a uh, shield. Your eyes have to be watching your opponent, right? I mean, they have to be focused on where the next blow may come from. And so you cannot allow your eyes to become idle in this battle. You're fighting a battle. You've got to keep your eyes open. And too many Christians go through life without this level of paying attention to what's going on. Life is not a battle for many Christians. It's really not. They've given up. They, they don't want to fight. They don't really feel deep down that they need to fight. Sure, they'd prefer to win, but it's so hard. You have to devote yourself to that. You have to work at it, and you do. God expects you to work at it. And so victory doesn't come easy. It doesn't come cheap. God makes us do this, do these things. He doesn't just hand us victory. The helmet of salvation. Take the helmet of salvation. The head is one of your most vulnerable parts on your body. You know this. Um, anybody that has had a concussion, even a mild one, knows that. It's suddenly things go gray, your vision starts narrowing. You might pass out. But your head holds your brain, at least for most of us. Our heads mostly hold brains. My dad didn't believe that when I was little. He would always say that it's a good thing your head is attached or you'd forget it, and I was very forgetful. I would lose something he handed me a minute earlier, and I, I don't know, Dad, I don't know where it is, and he would get so angry with me, and I can't blame him. I mean, I was just not a very good helper. All I had to do was hold the flashlight, and yet every few seconds he's saying, Rod, flashlight, and I'm like, oh, and then before long it's like, so I was not a good helper. So the head is vulnerable. There was a man about five or six years ago at UP. He was on this taco ride. You ride from downtown about 20 miles into Iowa, eat at a taco shop, and ride back. He crashed his bike. He wasn't wearing a helmet. Uh, he almost lost his life. He was, he was uh, in a coma for several days. They had to force him into a coma in order to allow his brain to uh, reduce swelling. And when he did eventually come back to work, and it was oh, six, eight months later, his boss, I talked to him later, he said, yeah, he's kind of not the same. He had had much more energy just before the injury. He was just always willing to take on work, do things, respond. And after that, it was like he didn't care. It, it was hard to get him to be productive. And within a few months, he retired. But uh, our heads hold our brains, and that's very important. I have a question down there about where do angels keep their memories? I don't know, and I asked Phil, and he has theories, of course. Phil always has theories, but he doesn't know. And so that's a question you want to keep peppering him with going down the road. We don't know where spiritual beings keep their memory. We don't know if it's some physical thing. Is it spiritual thing? We don't know where we keep our minds, right? Is our mind just in our brain? I don't think so. Because when we die, we expect our minds to be with us wherever we go. And so obviously God is going to connect us with our glorified body down the road. So there are mysteries to even how we're made that we don't understand. And materialists, atheists, they, don't, they can't answer these questions either. They, they are, they are um, facing very difficult challenges to explain that everything is just organic and stored up in your head. Jesus said the gates of hell would not stand against the church, meaning that Satan is on the defensive. And it's hard for we Christians to think that way. 
because we don't take the offense seriously. We have to go on the offense to take any ground. You could have the best defense in football, but they're not going to win you games. Not typically. It's the rare defense in football that wins any football games. The offense has to come through. They have to score. They have to make up ground. Satan lost the legal right to all of what he had once held dear. Jesus conquered him and took it. He bound the strong man and won the victory. And on our behalf, we are, we are to go forward in his victory. Yet too often, we are too timid. There is a little vignette from here that I want to read. This is uh, by Mark Bubeck, Warfare Praying. And these, both of these writers, Dickinson and Bubeck, they have so many stories of people that have come to them for counseling that are experiencing demonic oppression. A Christian man experiencing a severe battle with Satan and his demon kingdom sought my counsel. The powers of darkness were suggesting to him such thoughts as curse God, tear up the Bible, set the church on fire, and others of an even more vulgar nature. After carefully teaching and encouraging him in his warfare, I instructed him to re react aggressively against the thoughts that seemed demonic in origin. I urged him when such thoughts came to say something like this, I reject these thoughts to curse God and choose instead to honor the Lord. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, I bind the power of darkness that projects these thoughts into my mind. And I command you and all who work with you to leave me and go where the Lord Jesus Christ sends you. This man sat there slack-jawed. And he said, this writer says, his response was typical of many people who are under attack. He had been intimidated so long by the fierce opponent of opposition of Satan that he said to me, can I do that? I'm afraid to do that. I'm just a man, and Satan is so powerful. And it's true. These demons are much more powerful than us, but we do have the high ground. We just don't exercise it as we ought. And uh, I'm going to, afterwards, if you want to come up and leaf through these books, they're pretty interesting. Uh, Phil recommended these when he preached on this a month or two ago. And so I've been reading them in preparation for this study. But we have been victorious through Christ, and we don't acknowledge that. We don't exercise the power of that. It's not our power. It's God's power. But we must exercise it. God is like a parent who's teaching us how to deal with the bully. He's taught us. We are capable but he's not going to fight the battle. He wants you to go out there. You have to face down your fears. You have to enter into this fray. Face the enemy. And then God will give you the victory. It's like Phil has often said, God uh, steers a moving ship. You have to take action. You have to move your feet. You have to get going. Now, the next one is prayer. This is beyond the sixth element of the armor. Praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit. The sword was our first offensive weapon. It is both uh, defensive and offensive. Prayer is our next, and it is both defensive and offensive. We know the imprecatory prayers in this church. We believe they are ours to exercise. Much of the church now does not do that. They believe those were for a pastime and that we are forbidden to pray them. But that's silly. We must pray them against Satan's kingdom. 
In Acts 6, when they formed the diaconate, they formed it for this purpose. This is what the elders and apostles were to do. Give their attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. And again, it's no accident. These are two offensive weapons. The first five things I told you about were all defensive, but these are offensive. The elders are supposed to take the offense. It's a primary duty of elders to guard the flock. And you can't do that with only a defensive posture. You have to sometimes fight and go on the offensive. The eighth aspect of Christian armor that isn't here is, again, a third defensive and offensive weapon. And let me read from Mark chapter 9, starting at verse 14. Mark 9, 14. When he came to the disciples, this is Jesus, he saw a great multitude around them and scribes disputing with them. Immediately when they saw him, all the people were greatly amazed and running to him greeted him. And he asked the scribes, what are you discussing with them? Then one of the crowd answered and said, teacher, I brought you my son who has a mute spirit and whenever it seizes him, it throws him down. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth and becomes rigid. So I spoke to your disciples that they should cast it out, but they could not. He answered him and said, O oh, faithless generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I bear with you? Bring him to me. Then they brought him to him, and when he saw him, immediately the spirit convulsed him, and he fell on the ground and wallowed, foaming at the mouth. So he asked his father, How long has this been happening to him? And he said, From childhood. And often he has thrown him both into the fire and into the water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Jesus said to him, If you can believe, all things are possible to him who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said with tears, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. When Jesus saw that the people came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, Deaf and dumb spirit, I command you, come out of him and enter him no more. Then the spirit cried out, convulsed him greatly, and came out of him. And he became as one dead, so that many said, He is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. And when he had come into the house, his disciples asked him privately, Why could we not cast it out? So he said to them, this kind can come out by nothing but prayer and fasting. And so to me, it's obvious then that fasting, just as the imprecatory prayers, is a very powerful weapon against Satan that very few of us practice with any regularity. And yet, I'm telling you, if you yourself or in your family have faced what you believe to be demonic oppression, you must be fasting and praying regularly to be able to defeat this that is attacking you. And so I really encourage you, and I'll fast with you. Tell me what, what you're going to do, when you're going to do it, and I'll gladly fast with you. So, there are rules in organized sports, referees to enforce them. And we might think that that's not true of Satan, not at all, that he could do anything he wants. But we know that that's not the case. One of the most beautiful lessons from the story of Job occurs right at the very beginning, where God is bragging to Satan, have you seen my servant Job? And what is it that Satan says? 
you have made a hedge around him such that I can't get to him. See, Satan wanted access to Job. He knew of Job, but God was protecting Job because Job was wearing armor. We know this. And so when you're wearing your armor, if you're wearing your armor and something does get through, you know it was by God's design. God intends that for your good, just as when Joseph was sold into slavery by his brothers. But yet, so many of our failures are probably because we're not wearing the armor. We're not exercising the weapons that God has given us in order to defeat evil and be victorious. God did place a hedge around Job, and that was a beautiful thing, but he did remove it for a time. And yet he places a hedge around all of us. That's what this armor is. This is a hedge that God allows us to have in place. He does want us tending it, though. We must tend that hedge. We have all authority and power over our enemies. We need only to exercise it. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word Lord, you've made this world. You understand Satan. You understand the demons. You understand the spiritual realm. And you know how weak we are. And you have made us to be dependent on you. And yet, Father, we must come to you in faith. Only then will you aid us. And so we pray, Father, increase our faith. Have us to rely upon you in all of our battles. May we honor you with our lives. We thank you for having created us to enjoy this beautiful world. And we pray, Lord, that we would be soldiers in your kingdom. Teach us to fight. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.